Um, just a word of announcement to you. I'm going to be uh, doing one more sermon out of the latter part of Romans this morning. And then Eric Smith, pastor, one of our two pastors over at the East Campus, will be getting the book of Philippians next Sunday. And he will be preaching at both campuses for four weeks. And then I think the plan is for he and Dan to split back and forth. But going through the book of Philippians starting next Sunday. But there's one more sermon out of Romans, and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 14, if you would. Last week, we looked at chapter 12, and we looked at verses 9 to 16, talking about life, the practical outworking of godliness in the church, believer to believer. There's at least 16 points there. You could divide them up so they come out 12. But we looked at those last week, and I would encourage you to keep going back and looking at those as often as you get a chance. Life together, the outworking of godliness in the local church. Today we're going to talk about the outworking of godliness part two, but I, here's another title. How do we get along in the body when we have different opinions. Do you ever have different opinions in your marriage? Maybe every 10 years or so you might have one. There are differences of opinions in the church on a lot of different things. Different opinions on what is right and wrong. Different opinions on how we should live different opinions on how we should govern the church or when the Lord comes back. How do we feel about that? How do we feel about the details of His second coming? There's a lot of things, even direction for the church, even when we meet as elders. Do you know what we find a lot of times? That godly men can have different opinions. They can have different thoughts. I think that's one of the reasons that God has put the church together with one head, that is Christ, over every local church, and He's put a group of godly men as under-shepherds to listen to His directions. One man leading a church would not be good, not one man in this world, but many men can listen to one another and hear from one another and process and make decisions together. But it isn't always easy. If you've been an elder, you know it's not always easy. But when godly men get together and they pray and they process and they work together, God leads and gives directions. But we want to talk about what Paul says today in Romans chapter 14 and on into 15 about getting along and how we do that and how we treat each other when we have different opinions about some pretty important things. This is actually the second time, there's six, actually seven parts from Romans 12.1 down to 15.13. Paul goes through seven different areas of practical living after he spends the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans on the gospel. Regeneration, justification, 
sanctification, glorification, getting people lost in the first chapter, chapter 1 and 2 for that matter. When he gets to the practical section, out of those seven, the two that are for us are verses 9 to 16, the practical outworking of godliness listed there, those 16 principles. And then this one, which is the hardest of all, how to get along when we don't always agree. The reason I think Paul spent, when, when I calculate this, there's at least about eight or nine chapters in the New Testament on this subject, just on this subject. Some epistles are only four chapters, but he wrote eight or nine just on how to get along when we have differences of opinions. Why do you think that was important to him? Because even in his day, he saw difference of opinions between Gentile believers and Jewish believers that were part of one church, the body of Christ, and he was concerned that those differences were going to be used by Satan to divide and destroy and conquer. He was very concerned. So he writes many chapters, but we're going to focus on 14 and midway down to 15 this morning as we look at these chapters and as we see what he has to say, giving us principles about what we might, what could be the cause of these differences and what areas should we look for them to occur in. That's where we're going to go just as we kind of introduce this whole section. So this is a key area and differences can they can involve lots of different areas, and there can be different things that cause them. So we're going to just dive in with an introduction and then get going in this particular message. Let me explain, first of all, that when he writes about differences between the weaker and the stronger brother, in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 and then in Romans 12 to 14, other passages as well, it's interesting that it can occur on both sides. In, in one case, the Jewish brother could be the stronger brother and the Gentile brother the weaker brother. In the other passage, it can be just the opposite. For instance, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 obviously deals with Gentiles being the weaker brother. And the reason that they're weaker is that they have by and large come out of idol worship. And having come out and become a Christian and having left the idol worship behind and been involved in that, they are very concerned now that they cannot eat meat which has been offered to idols, that that's sin. That's absolutely wrong for them. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians addressing the weaker Gentile and saying, listen, there's no such thing as another God. And God has ordained all things to be free to eat. In essence, if you go to the meat market, he says, you can buy meat. Don't ask if it's been offered to an idol. He did give them some clear direction. He said, I don't want you going to an idol temple because even though there are no other gods 
that are being worshipped there because there is no other God. There are demons involved, and I don't want you fellowshipping with demons. You partake of the Lord's table, and you show that you're one with Him when you do that and one with each other. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Don't go to the festivals anymore. But when it comes to eating meat offered to idols, don't ask. If, if someone that's not a believer invites you to their home and they have a, a meal before you, don't ask if that meat has been offered to idols. But if they tell you it's been offered to an idol, then don't eat it for the sake of your conscience. And he says, I, I'm not really talking about your conscience. I'm talking about theirs. I'm talking about theirs. So there it's dealing with the Gentile believers that have come out of idol worship. When you get to Romans 14, it's primarily dealing with Jewish believers being the weaker brother because they've come out of life under the Mosaic law in which there were special days to be observed, feast days, sacrificial days, in which there were certain meats that they could eat and certain meats that they could not eat. And so when they came into the church, they brought a lot of their background in. And they were suggesting to the Gentiles, no, we can't eat pork. That's, that's forbidden. We can't, we can't eat certain meats. And we've got to keep certain days. This is what God wants. This is part of what it means to be righteousness. So here you have in the church these two groups of new believers that haven't been together before, and they're both having problems bringing things in from their past. And those differences of opinion are causing division. So Paul writes on the side of the Jewish brother being the weaker one and laying out principles for us how to get along. But here's, here's what I want to say to you, even we, as we look at these principles, folks, we can, we can disagree on a lot of things. I grew up in a church that said to women, it is wrong to wear makeup. You can't do that, that's sin. I grew up in a church as a teen when they said, it's probably wrong to have a TV in your house. It is definitely wrong to go to movies. It is definitely wrong to ever drink a glass of wine, even a low alcohol content glass of wine. So we had rules, and we didn't all agree about what those rules were. Here's what I would say to you at the beginning. Where we find the rules for living is right here in the Word of God. Right here in the Word of God. We must always test everything by the Word of God. We can all bring things into our Christian life from the past, can't we? We can all start writing rules to say, this is the way we have to live. And there's a danger in legalism. There's a danger in a church setting rules that are not in Scripture and trying to hold people to them. And then there is a danger on the other side to throw out rules that are actually right here in the Scripture. That's going on in our day too. People are changing. They're looking at the society around us and the society is bleeding into the church. And we're being told that you don't have to listen to those things. 
when Dan, my son, who's one of the pastors at the East Campus, was at Messiah College, he had a professor there in the Bible department that said to his class, a third of what the Apostle Paul wrote was right on, and one-third was his own opinion, and the other third, he was just wrong. Now, if you're sitting in a Bible class and you hear that, what do you say to the professor? How do we know which is which? Do you pick and choose? All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is the Word of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the Greek word there is perfect. You don't need anything more to guide your life than the Word of God. But here's the problem that was going on back in that day. The problem was people were listening to their conscience about what was right and wrong, and sadly, one or two things were happening. They were bringing things forward from their past, their, their conscience had been formed in the past, and was carrying things forward to the present, or in the case of the Jew, he's no longer under the old covenant, but under the new. And he was transferring some things in from his, his old covenant days that were still part of his conscience. What's your conscience, do you know? The conscience is that part of you. There's 29 verses in the New Testament that uses the word conscience. Sometimes do a word study and look them up. Paul talks, for instance, about, I have kept a good conscience. I have not stirred from following my conscience since I became a follower of Christ. There are other times when he'll say, people have defiled their conscience because they have ignored it. The conscience is a part of our inner man. Uh, inner man. It's a part of the spirit, inner part of us. And God has given us a conscience as a moral compass. And things get written and recorded on our compass. Not literally, but I'm, I'm speaking figuratively. Our conscience accumulates things as right and wrong, and it holds on to them. Look at, at Romans chapter 2 with me for just a moment. Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. In that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. He's talking about Gentile unbelievers here who don't have the law, but they show the work of of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Your thoughts will respond to your conscience and it will either excuse, defend. You can ignore your conscience, but your conscience is a guide. And what we're learning in these passages on the weaker and stronger brother is your conscience must be followed because it's a guide from God and you must follow it until you get it transformed by the Word of God, until you get it renewed. Do you remember what he says, what he said to us as we were looking last week in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Let me read those verses again. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world. In other words, no longer, you've come to Christ, don't any longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how Paul? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. When you become a believer, you come into that realm with a conscience that's been geared to your past. Maybe again from the Jew, it was part of the Old Testament, it was part of the Mosaic Law, and you're carrying that forward. Now it needs to be renewed. And it needs to be renewed based on what? The Word of God. You renew it based on scriptures. You don't just listen to people. You don't just bring forward things that were on your conscience from the past. But your conscience is a moral guide. And you continue to follow that conscience until the Word of God frees it up and transforms it and renews it. And now you're, you're good to go. That's what's going on in the passages that are before us. And the first thing that Paul does, look back now at 14. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 12. There's three points in here. And the first thing that he's saying to them is, I want you to know that when, when it comes to those who have your consciences formed right by the word of God and those who do not yet have that in their conscience, I want you to know how to treat one another. And here in these first 12 verses, he speaks to both sides and he says, don't judge. Don't be the judge of your brother. You stronger, don't judge the weaker. You weaker, when he exercises his freedom that the word of God allows, don't judge him. Don't do that. That's the first principle that we're looking at here. And the very next thing is, don't cause him to stumble. Don't get him to exercise the freedom which is legitimate, which the Word of God allows, until his conscience gets rewritten. This moral compass he must follow. Don't cause him to stumble and sin against God. And the third thing he says to them both, both sides, you must be willing to yield your own rights for the sake of your brother. There's some good thoughts in here, folks. We are not, we, we are not the servant of each other. We're the servants of only one God. And one day we will be judged by him. If I see someone in my neighbor's yard fixing his lawn and pulling up old trees and putting in new and putting in a new lawn and all kinds of things, is it my responsibility to walk over there and instruct him and tell him how I want it done as the neighbor looking across the street? I, I think this tree should go over here. And really, I don't really like that kind of tree. Could, could you get another tree here? He's working for my neighbor. He's hired by my neighbor to do my neighbor's wishes. I have no right to go over and tell him what I think and give him instructions. We are not the servants of each other in the church. We're the servants of Christ. And we are to obey him. And he is our judge. And one day he will judge us. And we must follow our conscience. 
until we get teaching and instruction and we see in the Word of God, oh my goodness, I was holding on to something. I didn't have a TV, but now I see it's not so much having the TV. It's what I watch on that thing. Now I'm clear to have that TV and I'm not violating the conscience that he's given me and thus sinning against God. Let's, let's begin reading at verse 1, 14, 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let him who eats regard uh, let him who eats not regard with contempt him who does not eat. That's to the stronger brother. And let not him who does not eat, the weaker brother, judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for, for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We're not each other's judge and each other's master. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God, so then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. See, what was happening in the church in those days and what happens in the church even to this day is we have our opinions about things that are right and wrong, and we are to follow what our conscience says to, the, to us about it, but whether we're on the weak side or the strong side, we tend to want to come along and make sure that everybody does what we want them to do. That causes strife. That's not our place, unless we see someone who is in sin, we are to go to them when it's clearly said, but not over what day they choose to honor or not, or what meat they choose to honor or not, or what they choose to wear to church, or whether they choose to have a glass of wine, or whether or not we could go on and on. We all have our standards, but we have got to be careful. The strong can hold the weak in contempt the weak can look at the strong and say, you're sinning, and I'm judging you. Stop it. And do you know who gets the victory in all of this? 
Satan, whose purpose is to divide the church, to destroy lives, and get our eyes off of Christ. Someone told me this week, and I'm not going to mention who it was, but they, they said they, were, they had a friend, a missionary friend, that was on an airplane, flying on a long flight, got out his Bible and was holding his Bible, reading his Bible, and then began to talk to the person next to him, in the seat next to him, and discovered that he was an atheist, maybe even a Satan worshiper. And in the conversation, he found out from this individual that the people I meet with, we are praying that Christian marriages will de be destroyed and go under. Did you know that people are out there praying for that in this world? They are, especially if they're a follower of Satan. They're praying also for the destruction of the church. And if there's one thing that I'm seeing in the day in which we live right now is Satan is on an all-out attack on this nation, on the world, and on the church of Jesus Christ, seeking to divide and destroy. And when he sees potential division, and he sees believers judging one another, you think he doesn't look at that as ripe territory to get in and to cause harm and to disrupt and to annihilate? He's doing it. He's doing it. And people are even praying that he will do it. We need to be aware of why Paul was saying, guys, you've got to learn to get along. Yes, follow your conscience. Follow your conscience. But you've got to learn to get along. Don't hold one another in contempt when you disagree, when you have a different opinion. And don't judge. Love. Care. Remember whose servant you are. Remember whose servant they are. They're not yours. They're his. That's the first point that Paul is getting at. And the second thing is, don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Now again, to cause him to stumble is this, that you come along and you say to him, I see that you're not eating meat, uh, you're only eating vegetables, but I want to tell you, the Word of God makes it plain that we can eat meat too. And, and I want you to come over to my house and we're going to have a big dinner, and, and you're going to love this because I'm barbecuing. And, and we're going to have meat, and, and I want you to, to eat it. Now, Paul in the verses that we're going to look at says, this is the very way you can cause your brother to go against his conscience before, he's, before it's been cleared and rewritten. You can cause him to violate his conscience, and when he does, he sins against God he sins against a holy God. And you also sin against him and sin against his God, your God, as well. You cause him to trip, to stumble. You cause him to fall because of the fact that you 
are getting him to violate his own conscience. Look with me at verse 13, down to the end of the chapter. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Why? Because the moral compass is telling us it's unclean, and it needs to be rewritten. It needs to be changed. But so far it isn't. For if, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good for it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have as your own conviction before God is he who does not condemn, excuse me, let me, let me start that again. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Did you get that last point? Don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't get him to violate his conscience. Don't get him to go against what he believes is right before he has the freedom. Because he wouldn't be doing it by faith. He would be saying, I'm doing this, God, but I don't believe you want me to. That's not by faith. That's by his own understanding. So the stronger brother is told, don't do anything. Don't encourage him. Don't hold him with contempt. Don't judge him. Yes, you can teach him. You, you can point out the truth to him. You can show him where he has liberty, but don't use your liberty to get him to violate his conscience because then he sins against God. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, when you cause him to sin against God, you're involved in sinning against him and you've also sinned against your God. You've sinned against God as well. Don't do that. Don't cause, and by the way, think about this. You're on a committee or you're on an elder board and you're trying to make some decisions for the people that are working with you, the ministry that you have, or the church that you're leading. You can have convictions that are very strong about what you believe. And all I can say to you, if you're in those positions, this is where it gets difficult. You have to work towards unity with all your strength and all your heart and all your mind to do that. 
but don't give up your conviction unless God shows you that you're on the wrong path. You see how Satan can get involved in, in these things? Satan can get involved and loves to get involved when he can divide one believer from another and on and on and on. These, these things are so very real. And, and here's, here's the qualification that we need to hear as well. We're not saying that those who see in Scripture the truth and the principles for life that we are to apply should stop teaching them. Paul didn't stop teaching the truth. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, I'm surprised at you. You're going back, you're turning back to the weak and elemental, worthless things that, that you were involved with before. I wonder if I even know you. Paul didn't stop teaching the truth. Paul didn't, and also, he stood up against legalism for those who would come along and teach. By the way, don't get married. God doesn't want you to get married. Paul said, stand against such false teaching. Stand against that. So on the one side, we want to make sure we qualify this by saying, you don't become a legalist. You don't allow legalism. You don't allow your church to become legalistic. You guide it by the Word of God and only the Word of God. And you don't stop teaching freedom. You don't stop teaching where there's liberty. You don't stop teaching the truth ever. And then we get to the third principle, yield, yield your rights for the sake of your brother. Paul said himself in 1 Corinthians, if eating meat will cause my brother to stumble, I will never eat a piece of meat again. Now, if you like hamburgers or hot dogs or turkey or pork, whatever, and that's a favorite part of you, that's a hard thing to say. But Paul says, I will yield my rights to eat that meat, if, that, if doing that causes this brother over here to stumble and to violate his conscience, I will never eat meat again. He went on to say, I have the right as an apostle in 1 Corinthians 9. I have the right as an apostle to get paid for preaching the gospel, to get support from you, but I'm not taking any of it. I'm not taking a penny of support to go out and be a missionary because I don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone. So the principles that Paul is giving here is saying, look, we can have different opinions and we will and we do, but remember, more important than your different opinions is righteousness and peace and joy. That's what the kingdom of God is made of. It's not about you getting your way. It's not about you judging your brother. It's not about you enforcing your liberty on him before he's ready. It's about love. It's about yielding up your own rights for his good and his sake because we're one in Christ. 
you Jewish brothers, you need to hear this. You Gentile brothers, you need to hear this. Those of us here need to hear this. Though we may not be Jew and Gentile, we're from different backgrounds. We have different thoughts. We have different ideas. We have different convictions. I am very aware of that. And that's not wrong in and of itself. If we choose a certain day to honor, we honor it as to the Lord. If I choose not to have a certain day that's special in my life, I do that as unto the Lord. We want to hold up truth. We want to hold up what is morally right. And we don't bend on that. And we don't give in to legalism on the other side of people coming along and saying, by the way, you can never go to a movie theater. I don't care what movie's showing. I grew up like that. People are putting in their own rules. We don't become legalistic and we don't ignore truth. And we love one another and we don't judge. And we don't cause to sin or cause to stumble. And we, we are willing to give up our own rights for the sake of the body of Christ that we might be harmonious in unity and love one another. Now, kind of bringing this to an end, if you think that we will ever as a church or the church worldwide will ever get to the place where there are differences of opinion, think again. There always will be differences of opinion for a variety of reasons. But do you remember again, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. Don't be divisive in your opinion. Don't, don't be one that has to have their way. Don't be one who thinks you know everything. I've been an elder in this church now for 20 years eight years, 12 of those years as a teaching pastor here. And I know this, I don't know everything. But one thing I've learned in these 28 years here is I love the brethren, I love the godly leaders that I work with, I love you, and yes, we're going to have some differences. But we need to be in the Word of God and apply these principles by the power of the Spirit of God. Don't be judgmental. Don't think you've got the final answer and nobody else does. Love, care, yield your rights for the sake of unity, for the sake of building up your brother, don't judge, don't hold into contempt. There's one Lord that you have, it's Jesus Christ. Seek to please Him. Seek to honor Him. And know that unity in the body, apart from allowing sin, we don't do that it's righteousness and peace. Unity in the body is extremely important.
And we can get in our different camps and in our different settings. And we can begin to go and, and not even care what's going on, what the consequences are. Don't allow Satan to get you there. Satan is the destroyer. He's seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ in our day. Don't let him do that. Look to Christ. This is his church. He's made us one. We're to love one another with brotherly love as though we were actually in the same physical family, affectionate love, and we're to love one another with agape love, which is sacrificial love, which is putting my brother ahead of myself. Do good to all men, Paul says. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. That's us. Do good to our brothers and sisters. Live your life in a way that honors the Lord, that will keep the enemy from our doors, that will show the love of Christ in all that we say and all that we do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and the reminder to us to walk in it, to be careful, to know what your will is by the power of your spirit to do it. Help us to renew our minds based on the new covenant, based on the word of God, and help us to be gentle and unjudgmental with those that are still coming along that path. Father, we want to be a church that's glorifying your name, that's honoring you, that's loving each other. And I pray that you would continue to do that in our midst. Do that in my life. Do that in all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.